0: In partnership with 2SER, the Walkley Talks podcast presents the latest episode of 4th Estate, a weekly program about the media featuring Australia's leading journalists. Broadcast live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SER 107.3.
1: Hello and welcome to 4th Estate, the live media and current affairs panel show for the week commencing the 17th of August. I'm Mariam Chihab, and on today's show... We'll be discussing Mark Latham's resignation as columnist for the Australian Financial Review, how new media outlets are declaring themselves feminist organisations, and ABC personalities making big bucks on the speaking circuit. Joining me in the studio is Georgina Dent, the editor of Women's Agenda. Hi, Georgina.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: And over the phone we have Jonathan Green, the host of Sunday Extra on Radio National. Hi, Jonathan. Howdy. And Mark Stefano, political editor at BuzzFeed. Hi, Mark. G'day, g'day. To have your say on the issues that we're discussing, get in touch through Twitter. Our handle is at fourthestateau, all letters, no numbers. Now, on Friday, BuzzFeed produced some pretty compelling evidence to prove that Australian Financial Review columnist Mark Latham was indeed behind the Twitter account at Real Latham, which many had thought was a parody account. Now, this account has been used to troll and bully high-profile women, including domestic violence campaigner Rosie Batty transgender military officer group captain Catherine McGregor and several female journalists. Yesterday, BuzzFeed also revealed that Westpac, which partners with the AFR to host the Women of Influence Awards, had complained about Latham's language. Catherine McGregor also complained about how she was treated. She was told by AFR editor Michael Statchbury that, quote, It is not easy to keep on top of every word of every story that gets into print or online these days, let alone monitor everyone's Twitter accounts. Latham just quit this afternoon as a financial review columnist. Mark, you broke the story. Was this outcome uh, what you expected? Um,
0: I guess if uh, the Twitter account was proved beyond reasonable doubt or the Twitter account actually finally was going to be recognised by the financial review, as early as Friday, I told my editor that I could not see Fairfax keeping um, Latham as a columnist considering the way that they had treated uh, Mike Carlton for what obviously is different, but similar outbursts against people on Twitter. It wasn't the content of his columns that were uh, really piquing the interest. It was the abuse that was being levelled. And as you say, at Rosie Batty, who is the current Australian of the Year, he spent quite a lot of time on Twitter slagging off former Australian of the Year Adam Good. Um, and Catherine McGregor, Annabelle Crabb, Lee Sales, you name it, um, he went after them. And I, when we started reporting this story to a lot of people, they just, everyone who knew him came out of um, the, 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 the woodwork. They started contacting us, um, confirming the story, saying, you know, um, this is definitely him and all of this sort of stuff. And Fairfax went to ground. They wouldn't uh, communicate with us. Uh, I had a very, very strange conversation with Michael Stutchbury. Um, I made sure that I I called him after the filming of ABC's Insiders on Sunday, knowing that he'd be near his phone. Um, And he hung up on me and screamed my calls for the rest of Sunday. So I think that as early as Friday, when when we sort of put together the story alleging the links between Latham and the Twitter account, it just seems very apparent uh, with the way that, I, you could see this playing out, that Fairfax had no decision but to act on what is some really, really vile abuse.
2: Trugina, are you happy with the result? I don't know whether... I, I don't think you could look at any of this story and, and feel happy about very much. I think, um, you know, in my, I, I agree with Mark that if... Uh, Mark DeStefano, not Mark Latham, but if, if this account, the real Mark Latham, was in fact Mark Latham, I've, I didn't see how Fairfax could continue having him in there employed, not not just because of Mike Carlton, but just because of the fact what, um, and it's not just journalists, most employees now, what you write on your social media, you know, you can be sacked for that and people have been and can be sacked for far less um, sort of vile abuse than than this account had been sharing. So I think I, I did actually today because I, I was also, lots of journalists have been trying to get in touch with Fairfax to get confirmation today leading up to when they made the statement. And... I was I was I was concerned that perhaps they were going to take a different approach I think that um the fact that he's resigned is in a way positive but I do think it's curious that in the statement that Fairfax have put out they haven't made any they haven't addressed, actually, the issue at all. They've said there's been some controversy, but they haven't said, you know, whether they had a conversation with Mark Latham about those tweets and that the, that conversation descended to the point where Mark Latham resigned. I don't think a lot of detail has been given in that. Uh, and I, perhaps that's not surprising, but from my perspective, it's disappointing. Jonathan, what do you think?
3: I think it's, it's, it's a complex and, and saddening thing on a number of levels, um, the first thing to say, I think, is that we don't yet know with, with utter certainty that the real Mark Latham account is Mark Latham. Now, what Mark's demonstrated through some some very good uh, investigative work is that a, an email, a publicly accessible email, which is Latham's, that is on the end of his columns, is related to the establishment of that Twitter account, but that could have been done by anyone. Um, we haven't had Latham's comment on that as yet, Um, i'm speaking to him at a melbourne writers festival event on saturday afternoon so i'll ask him if it's him um but we've not had you know that from the horse's mouth leaving that aside and and uh, what he's said on that twitter account um there are some look it's slightly more aggressive in tone than some of the things he said in his columns but the fact is that most of the stuff he said there relates to what he said in his columns and it's It's an interesting thing that it should be the social media expression of those ideas which uh, creates such public controversy and not the actual expression of them um, in in the columns for the financial review. That, that to me, is a strange distinction. Uh, I'm not sure quite what to make of that other than... You know do it on social media and you you invite the social media pile on and that that gets a fair bit more energy than just putting columns up on newspapers and newspaper sites especially when they're paywalled i guess the other part of it is mark latham himself and i this looks to me to be you know there's a very complex individual here and and someone who's capable of Really good thoughts and some very interesting contributions in in the public conversation, and at the same time, what looks to be almost almost crazy and and derogatory outpourings against women uh, and and almost specifically women if we <coughs> set aside some of the things you said about adam goods well, and do- and I, I I find that I worry face. about that you know i I don't know where that comes from, and I think that's a uh, it's it's sort of an unsettling and, and, and disturbing thing.
1: Well, Georgina, how could Mark Latham's column on Catherine McGregor,
2: which referred to her as a he-she, how could that have been published in the first place? That's a question that I have asked and it, it's a question I think Jonathan makes a really good point there about the the subject matter that Mark has dealt with in his columns and then the subject matter that he's dealt with on social media. And there actually has been, a, I would say it's been pretty sustained um, a criticism of the AFR for publishing Mark Latham's columns, particularly the ones that have related to issues like mental illness, like domestic violence, um, postnatal depression, where he has been... Um, there's been inaccurate information there and you, you've had bodies including the sort of Australia New Zealand um, Royal College of Psychiatrists putting in a public comment to the to the financial review saying this is irresponsible and it's inaccurate and there actually has been a considerable amount of criticism and, and then also including from commercial partners and that's very tricky because I don't think because Westpac are the partners on the woman of influence in some ways they have wanted to comment but in other ways they actually can't because of the sort of separation there but the fairfax have certainly been getting the message quite consistently that that the subject matter in mark latham's columns have been ca- causing problems and i think that it is curious that it is the social media stuff i mean also to give mark stefano um credit it has been some it was very compelling reporting to sort of be able to link the account and i think it does sort of make it black and white how vile some of the comments he's making are and perhaps that's why now there's been there has actually been action because it's been consistent but um the inclusion of um describing Catherine mcgregor as a he she is sort of one of many uh inflammatory and derogatory remarks that mark latham has made in his columns and i am not sure what argument the financial review could mount for justifying that can i just
0: jump in mariam yes um yeah, and what first of all, just just as a thing to clear it up for the listeners who may not have read our reporting on it, is you know it is just it's not just the email link to the account, it's the fact that quite a bit of the columns stem from these tweets as well. So I just want to make that very, very clear. And the second thing that i, I um I think that I agree with Jonathan, it is very sad because Mark Latham has been described as you know a brilliant thinker of left-wing issues in Australian life for more than two decades. and He's clearly a provocateur, and his columns were very provocative. And when they were good, they were great. Um, But when they were bad, they were absolutely abysmal and despicable. And I think that what it comes down to, and this is something that I was surprised by when we reported on Sunday about the complaint that Catherine McGregor had sent to the AFR, I was very surprised that when that column was published at the time, which was back in June, where he misgendered her twice in a national newspaper, which is, you know, uh, the Courier Mail has been wrapped over the fingers by the press council for doing something um, in a similar vein. But not only that, he questioned her war record. Um, a very senior journalist said to me on the phone when I spoke to them on Sunday, the Australian uh, newspaper, which loves going after feminists of all types, would never, this journalist said, would never have printed. Um, that's such slanderous mark against Catherine McGregor because it is just something that was well out of there. Now, that was what was so interesting is that this was a column that w- was was posted in June and that the social media sort of outrage machine didn't really pick up on. And McGregor herself didn't actually see it until she was told about it uh, during the week, during last week. So I think that. You know, there are a lot of issues at play here, and I do agree with Jonathan that it's a very sad indictment of Mark Latham, who does have a brilliant ability to write great columns, but his obsession with feminism and his obsession with Rosie Batty, we were told off the record by one person that, you know, Latham was going to write about Batty again, um, you know, in the next couple of weeks, basically trying to allege that she's been gaining this amount of financial advantage out of her son's death. And I just think that the Financial Review has to make a commercial decision, not just a free speech decision, about whether they associate someone like that with those ideas to their brand and their newspaper.
1: Jonathan, um, how accurate is Michael Stutchbury's claim that editors can't be across every word of a story or everyone's Twitter? What did you think of his response?
3: I think that's possibly true, but the the other thing that's also true is that they have to take responsibility for all of that um and he you know he's the editor of that publication he is responsible for what's placed in it and if he can't read every word he has to make sure that he has people who are reading every word who have good judgment um and you know there are things that have been published um in that column that that at, at least um should have provoked query uh and and in conversation with the author now we don't know that that may or may not have happened i i don't know um, i think there's a sort of a statutory lesson in this um about our moment and our, our thirst for this sort of controversy from from writers from columns i mean it's a, it it's a pity that that's uh that, that that sort of mob audience that sort of excitability is the thing that which is which is prized by a newspaper like the australian financial review i mean how is how is that sort of publishing really in its mandate it's it's an interesting commentary on, on the sort of the desperation of a lot of people uh, in media at the moment that um, a writer would think that this is the way they had to go to sort of um, push their popularity and that a, a media organisation like the AFR would think that that was a thing worth happening because of the, the traffic it generated.
1: You're listening to Fourth Estate with Georgina Dent from Women's Agenda, Mark DiStefano from BuzzFeed and Radio National's Jonathan Green. Recently, media website Mike declared on their Facebook page that sexism against men doesn't exist. It's not just Mike taking a stand, though. Earlier this year, BuzzFeed declared that they were a quote, 100% feminist website and wanted readers to understand this. Now, there are some issues that are clear-cut for media organisations. For example, most won't indulge anti-vaxxers or climate sceptics. Some would say that as soon as a media organisation declares a position on a certain topic, it sacrifices its objectivity. But there are certainly topics, the Holocaust for example, where we actually expect a media organisation not to allow a great variety of interpretations. Jonathan, at what point does a topic turn from something which media must question into something that it must not question?
2: Hmm,
3: here's a deep question. I think media should question most things. Um, uh, Yes, I think there are some things which purely, where the questioning purely belongs to the lunatic fringe. Um, You know, can jet fuel melt steel, for example? (laughs) Um, That sort of stuff is crazy. Holocaust denial would clearly fall into that bracket as well. Uh, Issues around gender politics, um, I think... uh, there's plenty of room there for robust discussion. Some of that discussion might feel, might make some people feel uncomfortable, um, but I think to rule a line under discussion which purely makes you uncomfortable is an unfortunate thing. Um, I, I think the best media outlets are ones that are always open to a well-argued point of view. Um, regardless of the argument. And, you know, intellectual curiosity is a really important thing. And um, I'm not sort of saying here that there's any sort of problem with political correctness. I don't hold that view. I think that, you know, what people call political correctness is often just respect and politeness, and I think those things are important. But equally important is intellectual and journalistic curiosity, and nothing really should stand in the way of those things.
1: Georgina, are feminism and sexism topics... um still not considered black and white enough for media organisations to take a stand?
2: Well, I think that that is probably true, but not just for media organisations. I think that um, sexism and feminism are there's so many different views on what it is. I mean, if you if you take a really basic definition of feminism, which is that people, you believe in men and women having equal rights, then that's a pretty broad starting point. And I think that that's a curious starting point for people to question. But I think that if they are going to question that, they should um, sort of be transparent in the way that they question that. I think that um, if you look about, if you think about, issues like domestic violence, where there's a really... it's There's a lot of evidence that in indicates that it is a gendered issue, that the gender inequality creates the dynamic that domestic violence flourishes in and that it happens on a spectrum. And then you think about media organisations taking a stand, um, you know, like Fairfax has had its shine a light on domestic violence and the Herald Sun has done some fant- fantastic work about this. And what they've done eff- effectively is take a leadership position. And it doesn't mean that you present only one side of the issue, but it means that you report accurately and sensitively about the information. You don't sort of just go for the sort of lowest common denominator about well she probably deserved it or why doesn't she leave, but you actually approach the topic with the uh, with the sensitivity and awareness that it actually deserves. And then in that, in-, in that instance you then have reports around domestic violence which are accurate. And people are free to disagree with that as they want, but I think that it's, it's the position that you take from the beginning. And if you take the position that you want to show take leadership here because there is a problem, then that sort of informs the way you're reporting. And I mean, so some people might say that that's a bias, but I would say the bias there is towards accurate information rather than the, the tendency towards um, misconceptions that are rife. And I mean, that would, yeah, to go back to the Mark Latham issue, but that's, he, he made comments in a column about domestic violence and they're, they're just not true. And that's an instance where I think that you can challenge that and you can say, that's not saying that it has to be a feminist stance, but it's saying actually domestic violence is an issue that we don't condone, that we think we should be stamping out rather than trying to entrench. And if we take that position, then what sort of information do we want to be giving our readers? We want to give them accurate information. We want to report sensitively. We want to give them um, the facts. Mark,
1: what does a news outlet stand to lose when it identifies as a feminist organisation? Um, surely it will alienate some readers as, um, as, I guess, evidenced in the BuzzFeed Tumblr page.
0: Oh, I don't think it does at all. And I think that um, I agree with what Jonathan and, and Georgina have said. And I, love, I love that sometimes you're in furious agreement with, with people on the panel and you want to sort of say something a bit different. But what I will say about this is that organisations that come out for feminist principles do so because of one thing in the end. It's because it's good for the bottom line. Because if you alienate uh, people of a certain aspect, what you're going to do in the long run is it's going to be bad for your financial position. I love the way that the marriage equality debate in Australia has now shifted where all business leaders are coming out and, and supporting marriage equality. Well, they're supporting marriage equality not just because they have great social conscience, They're also supporting marriage equality because it's good for business. And I think that what I want to get back to with the BuzzFeed example is that we are pretty shamelessly feminist in that way we're very shamelessly for lgbt equality as well um because it's part of um our audience's identity and it's important to everyone now what i will say is that we do these stories all the time where we objectify men we will sort of what we call first after men um we do heaps of those stories um and we will, the, the first comment always in the in the comments is essentially um, someone saying, "Oh, you wouldn't do that if it was a, it was a woman." And our reply is always, "Yeah, we wouldn't because it would be sexist." Because at the moment we're in a position where there's a power imbalance, where women aren't taken as um, uh, for their talents and taken for their skills; they're consumed as pieces of, um, or they're objectified so much during the media. What that if you can, if we if you come on a journey with Buzzfeed, if we try to explain to people why we do it, is we're trying to just even the playing field to get to the point where we can thirst after both women and men. But we're not there yet. What we what we want to do is actually have a bit of fun with the objectification of men. Now I know that the, 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 there, there will be, um, you know, a, a absolutists who will say, well, no, that's outrageous. But no, that's just the way things are you can't really be sexist against men in the same way you can be sexist against women. And I'm sorry if men get upset about that, but you just have to sort of look at the last, you know, 4,000 years of human history to, to to say, you know what, things are changing and it's okay.
1: Jonathan, what's the difference between a newspaper editorialising on a topic and a news outlet taking a company-wide stance?
0: Well, quite a bit, I guess,
3: although it's, it's, it's around degree. Um, I mean, if you... Uh... If you as an organisation say, well, this is our position on this particular issue and and it is going to affect the totality of what we do, um, then that's a very different thing to just having a comment on a particular point in a particular part of that publication. Um, But, I mean, ultimately, I mean, as Mark says, it's commercial and it is commercial to the extent that readers will, you know, consumers of the media will decide whether that's um, something that, you know, they will tolerate that in that outlet or they will not and um you know that that's sort of the ultimate judgment on these things I guess um and and the, the the outlets you know to take a particular position or rise or fall depending on that and um you know that there is so much scope so much competition so much variation uh, around the world of media today that um you know, th- th- those sort of things can be, yeah, a little competitive point of difference, or they can they can disadvantage you. But you know, the audience audience will decide.
1: You're listening to Fourth Estate with Georgina Dent from Women's Agenda, Mark Stefano from Buzzfeed, and Radio National's Jonathan Green. The Daily Telegraph published an article last week that centred on the fact that several ABC personalities like Lee Sales and Tony Jones receive quite good money speaking at public and private events. According to the article, they can receive anything from five to $20,000 to participate, which is of course separate from their ABC salary. The telly revealed that all paid speaking engagements have to run past the ABC's Director of News to evaluate whether there is a conflict of interest. Jonathan, how common is it for journalists to be on the public speaking circuits and to be paid for it?
3: Extremely common. Um I mean, it happens a lot. It happens all the time. Um, it's also absolutely true that any external work, and I'm, I speak here as you know, someone who's employed by the ABC, any external work for an ABC employee has to be approved by the head of your division. So in my case, that would be the director of radio. If it's uh, Lee Sales, it would be the director of news. Um, and and the, the, the key question there you know, in that, that ABC context is... Uh, is, is What you're doing a conflict of interest? Does it have the potential to compromise uh, your objectivity as as an ABC journalist? Does it have the potential to um, bring the organisation into some sort of uh, disrepute? And those things are taken pretty seriously. Um, But you know, uh, journalists in particular. Journalists with profile in broadcast media uh, are, are pretty sought after. A because of um, their profile, but B because they have, um, you know, professionally the skill set which which lends them to hosting of events is what they do. Um, so you know, there's there's always going to be that crossover. But I think people are fairly careful of their reputations, and places like the ABC are, are very careful of the the corporate reputation as well. And and there's a very Strictly observed internal process around that.
1: Georgina, uh, should the discretion of a conflict of interest lie with the ABC News Director?
2: Well, I think, as Jonathan said, it, it, I think my understanding is that it will always be the, the the relevant direct report, so it won't necessarily always be the news director. But I think um, that it is quite common practice for all of the reasons that Jonathan said. The skill sets that they have is attractive to any organiser of sort of a public event that requires a host um, and I think it's also not dissimilar to what a lot of other I mean I know when I was at Fairfax in, in the contract it has that if you're to engage in any other paid work you're to um, seek permission first from your from your supervisor and I think that is for the obvious reason that you don't want to create um, conflicts of interest and so I would say yes that the person who is the direct supervisor of the person in question they are absolutely the right person to to have that discretion. And I also think that given the individuals involved here that you're talking about are such um, sort of seasoned professionals, I don't think they would be particularly interested in um, sort of willfully throwing away any of their impartiality anyway. So I think that the, the combination of the individual making the call and the, and the um, relevant supervisor ha- using the discretion is certainly um, an, an adequate safeguard. Mark,
1: does speaking at certain events and getting paid for it place pressure on journalists than to behave a certain way professionally?
0: Oh, hell no. Hell no. And I think that <laughs> uh, as someone who used to be an ABC journalist for years, um, and now I work um, for a commercial company in journalism, um, if you are going to wall off journalists um, to act in a certain way, um, you know, they can't do certain things that um, other journalists do which is quite commonplace, you're going to create a 2 tiered system of journalism in this country where one section of journalists uh, uh, apparently got to act one way where they've got to remain completely objectivity-free without an opinion. And then you've got another section of journalists who um, are getting all the speaking engagements. And that would be really, really disappointing, not least... Because the ABC employs some of the best journalists in the country that deserve to be spoken, that deserve to be, um, you know, giving public speeches. And I think that the thing you remember, in the same way that uh, high paying salaries need to be given to people like the Prime Minister and MPs to make sure they attract talent, you still need to give things like rewards when it comes to public speeches to journalists at public institutions so you attract and retain talent. Otherwise, why the hell, if you're Lee Sales, would you stay at the ABC and not just get out of there and go for the money that somewhere else could provide you? Um, So I think that this sort of like call is 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 intensely political story that that, that the news limited papers wrote about is disappointing because you know they always crow about the ABC having um, you know uh, having great journalists who go about their days then don't sort of, you want people like Lee out in the building, you want people like Annabelle. you want Jonathan Gray in the building who are going to be really, really aggressive journalists who also can actually act like human beings and still interact with the market around them.
1: We are out of time for 4th Estate. Thank you to my guests Georgina Dent, Mark DiStefano and Jonathan Green. Thanks, guys. Pleasure.
2: Thanks Thank very you. much.
1: Don't forget you can listen to our podcast on 2SCR.com and iTunes and you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. 4th Estate is produced at the studios of 2SCR and broadcasts across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name's Mariam Tihab and we're back the same time next week.
0: We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of 2SER's Fourth Estate. Fourth Estate can be heard live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SER 107.3 and at 2SER.com. Check out the program description for links to follow 2 scr and Fourth Estate. You can subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook to be the first to know about upcoming Walkleys news
3: and events.